Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andrew Lucian. All right, so today we are once again joined by author Dan Masters. We are going to be continuing our series on the war in the West, and today we will be looking at our first battle, which is the Battle of Belmont. So we'll get a look at Grant's first moves of the Civil War. Uh, We will continue to talk about the strategic positioning in the war in the West, the rivers, and all of those things. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. All right, everybody. So we're, we're back with Dan Masters. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm excited to continue our series on the West here. So last time, it was a while ago, but we were talking about that. Sometimes the Civil War gets put on the back burner, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, But we are going to continue with our series on the War in the West. And we'll be picking up with the Battle of Belmont today. So that'll be exciting to take a look at. Um, We set the stage a little bit, um, but, but we'll kind of pick it up a little bit with a little recap on what's going on and then we can jump into the battle if that works for you. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, yeah, by, um, by mid May, um, Kentucky neutrality is breaking down. Uh, the States have seceded and Lincoln's got a mess on his hands here. And we're going to see Ulysses S. Grant take the stage for the first time. Yeah. And I mean, think about it, the, the war in the West really initially is really the story of the conflict in two states, in Missouri and in Kentucky. And the war in Missouri kind of kicks off a little quicker than it does in Kentucky from the standpoint of active engagements. Uh, there are several over the course of the summer. Um, but Kentucky is holding on to this interesting concept of new, true neutrality. Mm-hmm. I really, they have divided councils. You know, the 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 governor, I think, is Bariah McGoffin, um, secessionist leaning. Uh, the Kentucky legislature is unionist leaning. There's a division between you know the Kentucky State Guard. I mean, it's really a a a, a state essentially tearing itself apart on this this whole question that was tearing the nation apart. And as a result, the, the the federal commanders in the West, who initially is is Robert Anderson of, of uh, um, Fort Sumter fame, mm-hmm. um, has a, a really delicate task here because on the one hand, uh, the Ohio River would make a spectacular defensive boundary for the Southern Confederacy if they could get pers- you know, persuade uh, Kentucky to cast their lot with the South. And on the other hand, the Southern border of Kentucky leaves Tennessee wide open to invasion mm-hmm. through multiple, um, multiple fronts. So yeah, both sides kind of handle Kentucky with kid gloves for a couple of months, <laughs> trying to get them to, uh, come to a resolution, uh, one way or the other. Uh, both sides are actively recruiting troops in Kentucky, the Confederates and the and the uh, Federals. Uh, the Federals have ca- some camps in Ohio. I think the first two Kentucky regiments, uh, the first and second Kentucky, are largely Ohio volunteers. 
uh, which is kind of a, you know an interesting twist, but they call themselves the first and second Kentucky. But you know the the, or the beginnings of the Orphan Brigade of the Confederate Army um, are also you know being raised at the same time. So yeah, very much uh, Kentucky is is in play, uh, and it's uh, that that is you know Lincoln's home and Jefferson Davis's birthplace for both mm-hmm. of them, both of these men, and they both recognize how crucial it'll be to have Kentucky and on their side. So for a couple of months, yeah, the war and the you know, while the war is kind of kicking off in the east with you know Bull Run and Ball's Bluff and you know McClellan taking command and whatnot, and in the in the western theater as we come to know it, you know the Kentucky, Tennessee, and and whatnot, uh, things are things are going on, but there's not a lot in the way of active combat or conflict. That's really more further west in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see uh, Confederates kind of making that first move. Uh, Pillow, Gideon Pillow argues they got to take Columbus, Kentucky. So they're going to make the first move there. Um, Obviously, we got Island number 10, which is going to play a role in the future as well in our conflict here in the West. Um, And then we got Grant. I I think that Columbus operation, that was the, 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 the key tipping point. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Kentucky neutrality. I mean, although, you know, in all honesty, the, uh, you know, the Confederates moved in, I want to say September 4th or September 5th, and the Federals moved into the state very shortly there, within a couple of days. So both sides, you know, Kentucky neutrality goes by the wayside, but the Confederates move first. And as a result, uh, Kentucky ends up leading union and as the war progresses i mean it, it, kentucky has a very interesting history in the war um i've seen a couple historians uh, offer that had the had the confederate army invaded kentucky in 1864 as opposed to 1862 they might have met with a very different reception <laughs> the, yeah. the, as the war progresses and of course you know the war aims of the of the union army and, and the federal government change through the course of 1862 and into 63, specifically around, you know, the is- issue of the emancipation of slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, and the, some of the, the, the federal uh, generals that were given command in Kentucky were, were pretty harsh on the populace. By the summer of 64, Unionist sentiment in Kentucky is kind of on the wane. Mm-hmm. As as really their their moment to join the Confederacy was really in Bragg's invasion of sixty two. There was really no serious, uh, I mean, their cavalry actions and whatnot through the rest of the war, but nothing that ever seriously threatened the, you know, the stability of the government after Bragg leaves. But yeah, yeah, very interesting story that you know uh, how you know, Kentucky begins on the side of the union by the end of the war, they're still in the union, but they're disgruntled to say the least. And I think you're right. I think you said, did you say the 4th, September 4th? Yeah, I think it was September 4th when the Confederates moved into Columbus. Yeah, I think that's what I have on my notes. Yeah, and then like you said, so a couple of days later, I think the 6th, the union's going to send men, they're going to take uh, Paducah under Grant, and they're going to go to Cairo and uh, go up the Ohio River. Um, so, yeah, we're yeah, getting... I, I think, you know, Columbus is, you know, the, the whole thought process behind that was that Columbus had some uh, significant heights over the Mississippi River. So if you could uh, if, 
uh, install fortifications, and that would have been on the eastern bank of the Mississippi. You could control traffic uh, along that very strategic waterway. And likewise, with the Federals moving into Paducah, that, that is the the confluence of the Ohio and the Tennessee River. So the Tennessee River being a, a, a very obvious invasion route to get into the deep south. The Cumberland River will get you more towards Nashville. Also, mm-hmm. at that point, a very important strategic goal. But the Tennessee River, uh, that, that takes you down into you know northern Alabama, uh, once you get past the uh, uh, the Quad Cities down there, I don't even think they call it the Quad Cities. Uh, around Florence, uh, Muscle Shoals in mm-hmm. that area. I mean, in theory, it, it it gives you it's the the true pathway to Chattanooga. Yeah, and and then uh, really, when you think about it, that this is essentially the route that the Union Army is going to take in the next couple of years to penetrate the deep south it's going to be you know based on the tennessee river and also driving through south from nashville so those two river um, pathways are absolutely crucial and both sides recognize it and that's why the confederates are are starting to put fortifications on the tennessee side of their border uh you know forts henry and donaldson which we'll uh, we'll talk about i'm sure in Mm -hmm. a future future podcast um, but yeah, there, there was very wide recognition that both of these rivers, um, they're, they're essentially a knife, point, a dagger pointed at the heart of the South. And I think that that's really when, when you think of, you know, Pillow and, and Lionitis Polk, um, you know, moving into Columbus when they did, was really a recognition of this strategic reality. And that they, you know, for whatever, whatever their reasoning was, uh, they felt that, they they needed to secure Columbus before the Federals got it. Yeah, yeah. And the the river play, um, the heights, the bluffs is going to be a huge thing we'll see throughout the war in the West, throughout the Civil War in general. But um, we'll see that time and again in different battles. Like you said, Henry and Donaldson, we'll see the high ground in Chattanooga um, time and again. Vicksburg, the bluffs again, playing a big role. So, um, so we'll see that time and again. And so, yeah. Um, the rebels move in. Um, they move troops from Columbus to Belmont, and Grant's going to want to move on Belmont to protect the flank um, and prevent Polk from reinforcing some of his troops. So that's going to kind of set the stage here. Grant's getting his first action. Uh, the the Ohio-born West Point grad, um, not too great of a life up until this point, depending on who you ask. Uh, a a uh, litany of failure. Yeah. <laughs> Fails in real estate, farming. With the exception uh, of marriage, he he did it um, for all his business and personal struggles. Uh, Julia Dent Grant was, uh, I mean, that was the the love of his life, and mm-hmm. that's one thing he never messed up his marriage. So, yeah. despite you know you know that that hard scrabble farm was that in Missouri that he had. Uh, yeah, it, it, when you think about it, you know, it's essentially working in what his father-in-law's store in Galena mm-hmm. yeah. as the war begins. So uh, hardly an auspicious beginning. I mean, when you kind of contrast how how the war is going to end with Grant and Lee, you look at Lee and you would expect Lee to end the war, uh, uh, you know, in triumph and not this 
not this failed army officer who's working, you know, working, I'm sure for not a lot of money in his father-in-law's store, but, uh, you know. Yeah. And Grant, Grant goes to stranger McClellan. than fiction sometimes. Yeah. Grant goes to McClellan to try to get uh command. He's denied. So he gets put in charge of the, the Galena volunteers, isn't it? Who he gets put in charge of and yeah. Yeah. becomes yeah. a colonel and. Yeah, I think uh, Governor Richard Yates recognized, you know, especially and, and, you know, interesting, you know, kind of point out this point in the war, uh, any anybody with military service was kind of uh, really highly sought. Um, even somebody that was a private in the Mexican War, I mean, you see a lot, you see a lot of these Mexican War vets that uh, had maybe not a whole lot of combat experience, but they had some familiarity with drill or just with army routine uh, being made captains and colonels. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, Grant, of course, you know, being a West Point graduate, uh, Mexican War with, with significant combat experience uh, and demonstrated bravery. Um, he might not have been, you know, his personal credentials may not have been very impressive. I mean, you know, he, he certainly didn't give evidence of, of any great skill and talent with what he'd accomplished in life, but he was a good soldier right. uh, with a drinking, with a, with, with a reputation of having a drinking problem. Um, but that said, I think governor Yates of Illinois, uh, good officers, officers with knowledge were hard to find and Grant certainly had knowledge and, and he put him in charge of that 21st Illinois. That was, you know, Grant's first, he wasn't there very long before he was a commissioned brigadier, but, uh, yeah, you see, you see a lot of that in the early part of the Civil War, really on both sides, because uh, both armies, they they recognize how green they really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing both armies have in spades at this point is ardor. They they are just you know they cannot wait to get into the fight with the enemy. Um, there's all you know there's kind of this persistent fear. Um, we got to get off to the war quickly because it might be over before we get a chance to make our contribution. Right. Um, you think about it, you know, none of them had any idea. Very few of them suspected that this conflict would go, you know, three to four years in length. And that all of them that had, you know, this great desire to get a belly full of fighting, they, they would get far more than their share uh, as time went on. Even Lincoln thought it was going to be one and done battle, and he's going to be gravely mistaken after Bull Run. So, yeah. so Grant's going to take three thousand troops, two gunboats, and he's going to go against this Confederate camp at Belmont, Missouri, uh, right across from Columbus. Yeah, we, we, yeah. Interesting that Grant recognized that he was. He was going up a, against a much larger force. There was something on the order of 17,000 Confederate troops in and around Columbus. And he's and also there's a number of different operations going on here. So Grant's Grant's move was in part to prevent the Columbus garrison from sending some troops further into Missouri, I think, to reinforce Jeff Thompson. Uh, so the idea was uh, basically to go down there and make a demonstration against uh, the the Columbus garrison and and the Belmont garrison, which, you know, they were across the river from each other, mutually supporting. Mm -hmm. And uh, General Charles Smith led a contingent of federal troops from Paducah, I think via the Mayfield, uh, Mayfield, which is, I think, located in the northeast 
of, of uh, Columbus itself, uh, basically to take up a threatening position, but was not, you know, certainly not directed to you know, charge the uh, charge the fortress of Columbus or anything like that. While while Grant was operating on the western side of the river, um, interesting, you know, kind of preparing for today's uh, discussion, uh, reread Grant's memoir uh, on this, which I. I I have a number of issues with Grant's memoir, with uh, some of its factualness and whatnot. But I think his section on Belmont is uh, it straight. It, it it just rings true mm-hmm. as you read it. And one of the things that that he points out early in his commentary is that he had no intentions of attacking the Confederates at either these at either Belmont or. Columbus when he started out, but he recognized pretty quickly that if he was going to, he was going to not be able to maintain discipline with these troops unless they had a chance to, you know, if they, they, they just, they were not going to be satisfied just getting in a boat going down, you know, shooting off a few rounds and making some noise and going back to Paducah and Cairo. Mm-hmm. That just, that wasn't going to fly. It was interesting. Um, he recognizes this, and allows it to change his strategic thinking about what he's going to do. Um, I don't know that Grant in 1864 would have made that decision. Um, you know, if he had already set in his mind what he has, what he had planned to do, I'm not so sure that you know the troops being all you know making a ruckus about it would have changed his mind. But in November 1861. Uh, it certainly did. And I, I think it, it goes back to, uh, once again, the just raw greenness of these troops. I mean, mm-hmm. they, like you said, their their primary asset at this point was not discipline, military skill or knowledge. It was ardor and patriotism. These guys were uh, on, the, on both sides, federal and Confederate, uh, thirsted to get into battle with the enemy. And here was an opportunity and they were uh, and it sounds like it was both officers and men that were uh, quite loud and in, in their uh, uh, expressing their desire to mix it up with the enemy. So yeah, Grant kind of holds a little bit of this is this is a bit of an operation on the fly, you know, and uh, it, it, as we'll soon see, uh, the, the lack of a lot of planning kind of rears it. Where's this ugly head pretty quickly in the operation? And the greenness of the troops, right? We'll see at the, oh, yeah. the end of the battle how green oh, the, the, this whole battle. I, I um, was reading uh, uh, Nathaniel uh, Hughes' uh, book on Belmont. I'll have to show it off because it, it is a, if, if no one has it, they should pick it up because it's a superb book. Uh, yeah, Nathaniel uh, Cheers Hughes, uh, The Battle of Belmont. It's not you know, 300 pages. Mm hmm. Most of it, you know, now it's really 200 pages with 100 pages of notes. So um, <laughs> That's the, nice the thing way that he described books. the fight was uh, th- 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 this this battle was a mob chasing a mob. Mm-hmm. And I think he's absolutely right. Yeah. Well, let's just dive into the battle then. So we have this war in the east I and mean, in the west. We have Kentucky, Missouri, um, these states that are kind of on the border. Um, we see the Confederates going in, mm-hmm. taking Columbus, the Federals going in, taking Paducah. 
Uh, now yep. Grant's got his eyes set on Columbus. Uh, or, I'm sorry, on Belmont across from Columbus. Right. Um, so on let, November let's tie 7th, in one other operation that's going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Not with Grant's forces, but a little further east with, oh, at this point, is it, I got to think, is Anderson still in command or is this the Sherman era? They're, they're you know, the, the federal command of, of in Kentucky goes through a number of iterations there that yeah. fall. <laughs> um, but you know, we, we've already had the, the fight at Camp Wildcat, which is significantly in the southern portion, the southeastern portion of Kentucky. That took place back on October 22nd, a, a small engagement, but really the kind of the first one of any significance um, in Kentucky. And, you know, um, and by November 7th, November 8th, uh, on November 8th, we have the fight at Ivy Mountain, which is, you know, General William Nelson, um, you know, pushing deeper into the, the interior of Kentucky. So the Union Army has moved, has, you know, once Kentucky neutrality was, you know, consigned to the dustbin of history, uh, Federal Army moves into Louisville, moves into northern Kentucky and starts pushing further south along a couple other uh, of avenues approach to Tennessee. Um, but that's essentially going on at the same time as Grant's operation in in, in the you know western portion of Kentucky. So, um I believe by this point, Albert Sidney Johnson was in command of this uh, com- department number two. Uh, I know, uh, I, I know the timing for that. Uh, I'm thinking he arrived in the September-ish, October-ish time frame where he was actually in theater. You know, he had a very lengthy journey from out west to come back east. And, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, so at this point, you know, uh, John Johnston is assuming command of the overall command of the Confederate defense um, in the West. Um, but it, it really, I mean, Polk is, I think, more or less still on his own. You got Zollicoffer in more Eastern Tennessee, uh, moving up, you know, through Cumberland Gap and places like that. And William J. Hardy more in the, they will call it the, the center, um, mm-hmm. really centered around Bowling Green, Kentucky is where that, that, um, really, the line will stretch from Columbus on the Mississippi River through Bowling Green, all the way over to Zollicoffer in in eastern Kentucky, at least until we get to Mill Springs, and then that defensive line starts to shake pretty badly. And I think check. I'm looking at my notes here. I think I think you're right. I think it was Sherman because I have that. Yeah, okay. Uh, William Carter brought a plan to Sherman and Thomas, and on November eighth, he uh, attacked bridges along railroads through eastern Tennessee. So so I think Sherman was in at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before... Interesting, you know, with, with with Grant's first, you know, kind of foray, um, and this is, you know, called Belmont, his coming out party. Um, <laughs> Sherman at this, you know, time, it really is, is in a, one would consider a higher position than Grant. I mean, he essentially is in a position that Don Carlos Buell will take over uh very shortly yeah and only is in the job for i want to say a month two months at the outside but it's it's a very brief period of time and sherman just really and is really this first major command struggles mightily with the burdens of command Mm -hmm. and starts you know making predictions that you know we're going to need 
200,000 or more troops to put down the uh, the rebellion in the West. Uh, of course, nobody, you know, nobody believes that at this point. Nobody wants to hear that. Mm-hmm. And really, uh, Sherman's own uh, mental health certainly deteriorate, deteriorates rather rapidly and rather frightfully. And, you know, by December, uh, his friend, and they were they were quite close, Henry Halleck, uh, is convinced that, that Sherman needs a rest. And uh, Sherman uh, returns home to Lancaster, Ohio. And as he only as he, he himself later writes, he contemplates suicide. He is just so overwrought and beside himself with this first experience in command. Uh, really a, a traumatic uh, period for me. Think about it. It's like you, know, you look at it as a historian. It's like, my God, there wasn't a whole lot going on. What were you getting all stressed out about? Yeah. And there was it, it, it gives some sense to really how um, uh, fragile the federal effort was at this time um, mm-hmm. in the West. I mean, it was all new. And I, I think Sherman being a, a worry wart, as he, he readily admits that he is in his writings, um, foresaw a lot of the problems that were coming ahead and just struggled to see where the resources were going to come from and thought it all fell on his shoulders. And it was just, you know, it, it was too much. And what um, does he say? He's, uh, Grant stood by me when I was crazy and I stood by him when he was was drunk. Right. (laughs) But it's interesting, you know, the same period of the war, uh, how these two gentlemen who, who really will kind of forge this, this, this brotherhood that will eventually result in the success of the union army are on rather divergent, apparently divergent paths you know sherman of course was you know comes from a, a little more a, a politically prominent family uh in ohio uh both have the west point pedigree uh, but sherman had certainly been much more successful i mean when he resigned from the army it was to go into the banking industry not you know because there was any charges of uh you know, dereliction of duty or drunkenness or whatever you know whatever the the the, the Poi ploy was about Grant. Um, and uh, yeah, to, to see how the how how they respond to this first real instant of command. I, I think Grant actually uh, comes out, out of Belmont. Um, he's starting to build his legend. And mm-hmm. Sherman at the same time is is going awful close to killing himself. So, you know, it, interesting to see how these two are gonna. How their story is going to twist and turn over the next, you know, six months. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and Sherman and Grant's going to have his up and uh, his downtime when oh, yeah. uh, Sherman starts to go up a little bit because Halleck. You know, we'll talk about Halleck and Grant's relationship, but um, there's some strife. I don't there. have to say anything nice about Halleck, right? <laughs> no, I'm well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What what am I? What am I least favorite? Uh, uh, generals of the civil war him and lionitis <laughs> no, <I>, polk would... <laughs> no i will i'm not i'm not going to defend halleck here so you don't have to worry about that <laughs> so yeah yeah i think that's, that's i know it's like so i want to go too far into the weeds about wrestling but if you ever heard of a guy named uh, jim Cornette, um jim Cornette is is uh another a professional wrestling legend even a manager and whatnot back in the 80s and 90s um uh, a Kentucky guy, Kentucky and Tennessee guy, just uh, 
<laughs> a bit of a loose cannon, but you know, if you ever <laughs> listen to him when he gets on a tear ripping on somebody, if I could do a Jim Cornette style uh, take on Halleck, I mean, we'd have to probably, we'd have to put it on somewhere, some channel where you're allowed to swear. It's just uh, Halleck is not one of my favorites. I dislike him quite a bit, but at this point in the war, he's, you know, he's kind of the, he's the power in the West, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Grant's Whoop. immediate superior in, in this particular engagement. Yeah. Well, actually, it's not Halleck yet. It's uh, that other clown, Fremont. Another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry, I'm, I'm a little riled up trouble. tonight. <laughs> so yeah, so Grant's gonna go on November seventh, and you want to take us through this battle a little bit and kind of set. The yeah, yeah, and, and once again, so the the idea was that uh, Charles F. Smith or C. F. Smith would would lead a force to threaten Columbus and basically keep Columbus looking to their east looking to their north and not necessarily paying attention to what Grant's doing just across the river in Belmont. Mm -hmm. um, that the, the Confederates clearly see what he's doing. It's, it, it, you know, they, even though the, the federal forces do disembark kind of around the bend such they're not in direct sight of Columbus there, the Confederates have plenty of scouts along the Mississippi river uh, Grant does have a couple of, of, of gunboats with him, the Lexington and Tyler, which I think also play an important role at the Battle of Shiloh six months later. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think those are the two gunboats that are on the Tennessee River uh, when Grant's army uh, 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 suffers that reverse on the first day of the battle. Uh, so yeah. uh, th those gunboats start exchanging uh, shell fire. Uh, with the fortifications along the Mississippi River at uh, Columbus. And then Grant uh, disembarks. I think he had five regiments. I think there were four Illinois regiments in the 7th Iowa. I, mean, I think it was the 22nd, 27th, 30th, and 31st Illinois, and then the 7th Iowa. And then uh, Taylor's Chicago Battery, which actually I think is Battery B, 1st Illinois Light Artillery. Uh, so there was a battery of six guns. I, I've seen different estimates on the numbers. I've seen 3,000 or 3,500, but, uh, uh, you know, when you think about it, it's, you know, a, a five regiment expedition with a battery. Um, you know, the regiments at this point are, are rather large, um, you know, 600-ish men each. Um, certainly not something you're going to see later in the war when most of these regiments are, you know, numbering three to 400 men kind of as as time goes by. But they disembark on the Missouri side of the Mississippi River with the idea that they're going to uh, kind of sneak up on this uh, Confederate encampment and uh, take it under fire. Yeah, Camp Johnston, right? Yep. Because yeah, so yeah, Grant men, Grant and Pillow are going to clash uh, here. So kind of the, the Confederate regiments. Yep, yeah, and the Confederates have I. It, their regiments were a little smaller. I, I saw one of uh, one of the accounts from uh, Alfred Vaughn, uh, who was commanding the or second in command of the 13th Tennessee, uh, described that the the reg, some of the regiments were really more battalion sized at this point, which is you know a, a battalion's you know essentially uh, a half a regiment, say four or five companies. 
And so, yeah, they, they, I think there's a, a half dozen or so Confederate regiments in and around Belmont, um, but they're not not quite as large as the federal ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so they're trying. They're kind of like, look over here, but the rebels aren't going to fall for it. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And and again, for the listeners, it is important to note. I know it's hard uh, if we're just listening, but um, we have Columbus, and then to the west across the river, we have. Um, where this battle is going to take place. Yeah, I've Belmont. Fought. Interestingly enough, the the actual ground where the battle was fought, at least a good bit, like Belmont itself, has long since been consumed by the you know the various pathways of the Mississippi River. So it's no longer there. The, the, I'm sure there's some small portions of the battlefield around that area, but Belmont itself no longer exists. Yeah. That's, I didn't know that. That's an interesting fact. I didn't. Yeah. yeah Columbus I know is tried. still there, but you know, Columbus is what, 80 feet, 80 <laughs> feet above the river, but you know, on the, on the, on the Western side of, of um, the Mississippi, that you know, like I said, the Mississippi being such a dynamic river, it does change its path and you know, broaden and narrow. And, and yeah, that, that is a very much a, a, a changing landform. but yeah, the Belmont itself as, as it was known in the civil war is no longer there. And for everyone, that noise was my dog in the background. So <laughs> that's what that was. I thought one of our fans might have been chir- uh, 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 chirping in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, she decided it was a good time to bang on the door. So, yeah, all right. So, um, yeah, so, and then yeah, it- Grant Grant gets his army. I, I'd say they're they are on dry ground and moving by say nine o'clock that morning, uh, moving towards this this camp Johnson. And they do run into some Confederate resistance outside of the camp. There is uh, there is a low ridge. I mean, the, the, this uh, to kind of put the, put this area into. I mean, this is the Mississippi River Valley, so it's it's very heavily wooded. Um, there are some cornfields, and and there are some some parts of that uh, of field or you know, of uh, battlefield are under cultivation. But by and large, it's it's you know kind of a primeval forest and. Um, you know, as anyone that's familiar with, you know, traipsing along, you know, along a river, you know, the real thick foliage and abundant wildlife and whatnot. Uh, so this, this isn't a nice broad, wide open, uh, meadow that (laughs) these guys are, are deploying and marching through. There's a lot of trees and shrubs and undergrowth and, um, which you know has as a part to play in you know how quickly the federals move. I mean, they actually, I think, all things considered, and given their level of, of relative inexperience, uh, actually deploy fairly quickly mm-hmm. and manage to to move in 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 a, a reasonable line towards their objective, uh, right up until the point of contact. You know, it, 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 they don't. I don't think they go more than a mile to two miles at the most from the boats before they're they're uh, mixing it up pretty good with the uh, the Confederates. Yeah, and there there's thickets, there's woods too, so they're moving through mm-hmm. rougher terrain for green troops. I mean, it's not yeah. like going across a straight field necessarily. And uh, so, yeah, they're going to hit the the skirmishers first. Um, and you mentioned they landed at about nine. I think by about eleven, they were pushing the skirmishers back. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And the battle it, it, it develops fairly quickly um i think it's one of the things i actually have some visual aids for today um, I, I don't, too many people know this but i i 
uh, one of the things I love collecting are bullets from the Civil War, and I have quite a collection. <laughs> um, but what's interesting in these early battles, uh, both the Confederate and the Union armies were really scrambling to, to secure firearms for their troops. And as a result, there was a real plethora of different weapons and whatnot that, that, that were employed. Um, you know, each regiment was different. Some regiments could march off to the war with, with Enfield rifles, which is really what everybody wanted. The Enfields were uh, kind of had a reputation in the United States as being the premier uh, infantry long arm at this, at this stage. Uh, but a lot of these guys, especially in the southern side, they went out with um, older 69 caliber smoothbores, uh, in some cases flintlocks, and in some cases weapons that dated back to the, you know, <laughs> the immediate post-revolutionary period. And it's the weapons will make the tactics in so really throughout the Civil War. Uh, even more pronounced here in, in the early stages in the West, where really the troops are rather, uh, in, say, indifferently armed. They're, the, most of their arms would be considered substandard in later years. Like I said, a lot of, a lot of smoothbore weapons. Um, but that said, you know, the effective range of a, a, of a smoothbore musket is 75 to 100 yards. So that means you need to get within 75 to 100 yards of the opposing line for your fire to have any effect. Mm -hmm. um, now, one could argue, well, if you have a rifle, well, your range is, you know, three to 400 yards or more. Uh, in theory, that is correct. The level of uh, weapons training that these troops at Belmont had received by this point was slim to none. And the way that you hit a target 400 yards away with a, a Civil War era muzzle rifle, uh, you got to learn to elevate. You got to learn to use your rear sight. You got to learn how to estimate distances. And that is a bit of an, uh, that takes some time and some effort. And time was one thing most of these guys had not had mm -hmm. yet uh, to learn that particular skill. Uh, so that said, the, the the officers of both armies, even if they had rifles, tended to continue using the smoothbore tactics of, you know, getting within 75 to 100 yards before letting loose. Um, at those ranges, however, uh, I think an argument could be made that a smoothbore weapon firing buck and ball ammunition, I'll show you an example here in a second, is potentially a more a more devastating fire single 69 caliber bullet. So I just kind of give you a quick example here. Uh, I think I'll be able to put this up in front of the camera. So what this is is a 69 caliber bucking ball. Of course, the balls have been uh, glued on there just for demonstration purposes. But essentially, when you fire this munition what you ended up getting out of the barrel were four different projectiles, any one of which could disable or kill a man, depending on where they hit him. And one of the key things to remember is you didn't necessarily shoot to kill, you shoot, you shot to maim. Because a soldier that, you know, was wounded in the arm or the, the leg or, you know, and usually would take a couple of men, a couple of men on the line would 
put their weapons down to haul this guy off the line. So instead of just knocking the line down by one person, you've knocked it down at least temporarily by three. Mm-hmm. So uh, that said, buck and ball ammunition fired at these uh, relatively close ranges uh, could do an awful lot of damage. Um, so in contrast, you know, the, the, the same type of weapon, if it was a you know, rifled weapon, you could fire more something like this. This is a, a typical 69 caliber slug. Um, you see, it's 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 a hefty projectile. Most of these are all oh, six to eight hundred grains in weight. It's 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 a certainly not something I'd want to be uh, hitting me. Um, <laughs> but that said, it is a single projectile as opposed to you know when you fire this buck and ball ammunition. Um, it is essentially, it's, it's like a small shotgun blast. Yeah. Right. And, uh, now, now maybe the, the wounds that you sustain from, you know, getting hit with one of these, uh, a buckshot, you know, isn't enough to disable you for the rest of the war or anything like that. Um, but probably a good chance that it may knock you out for the rest of the battle for, you know, purposes of, of, (laughs) you know, why are these guys here? That does the job just as much. And especially if we can take you out. And then your two best buddies haul you, you know, the half mile back to the camp at Camp Johnston. Do they come back to the battle line? Maybe. Right. Maybe not. So now we, 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 by hitting one man, we've taken out three. So, mm-hmm. uh, like I said, you, you, a lot of interesting discussion one can have about, you know, uh, the, the nature of these weapons at this point. But I do think it's, it is significant and it plays a role in how this battle plays out. That's fascinating. I love the visual aid there. That's definitely makes the video tonight worth it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so they, the federals initially pushed the rebels back. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and then we're going to see that Polk's going to bring reinforcements across the river. Um, Mm -hmm. and we're going to see a little bit of a catastrophe for the federals here. Yes. The, I, I've been doing a lot of study on world war one lately and, it's been said that you know during the first world war the british tommy fought for king and country uh, the french pulley fought for you know hearth and home and the american soldier fought for souvenirs <laughs> and i think it's absolutely their and their grandfathers in the civil war were equally guilty of this i mean the, the american passion for souvenir picking on the battlefield is just absolutely remarkable and that's precisely what happens here. Of course, you know, Grant, uh, Grant's men, um, you know, clash with the Confederates. There's, you know, maybe a half hour to 40 minutes of serious fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Confederates continue, uh, they, they start falling back towards the river. And eventually Grant's men push them through through the camp such that the Confederates actually fall down to the, they go down to the river bluff where they're kind of out of the line of fire. There's really nowhere else for them to go. And had Grant been able to, Grant and his commanders, I can't put this all on Grant because they're all green here. I mean, the, the generals down to the privates. Um, later in the war, had that happened, uh, there would have been a mass surrender. The, the, the federal commanders would have ensured it. I mean, you get an enemy in that position, you, you by all means, you, you, know, you, sec- you secure them. Right. In this case, the, 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 federal troops they move into these camps and they're they're convinced the battle's won they 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 have defeated the enemy 
and my God, what look at these camps here. Let's start, you know, they start rooting through the tents and, you know, they, they're coming out with, you know, those, those crazy Bowie knives that are, you know, <laughs> three feet long and um, they're busy gathering up spoil the spoils of war um, instead of, finishing the victory, you know, right. you, you capture the rest of the enemy troops. And of course, you know, the, the Confederates in Columbus see what's going on and they're, they're in the process of sending reinforcements across the river. Uh, another interesting thing is when the Confederates fell back out of Camp Johnson and went along the riverbank, they actually started moving north I, more or less out of the sight of the federal army. Of course, they're all busy, you know, gathering up, uh, uh, spoils and they actually get into positions once they you know it's a bit of a rallying point you know down there they're out and they're essentially out of out of the line of sight of the federals uh gives them a chance to kind of get reorganized and you know get their wits about them again and they essentially move north and then move inland such that when these reinforcements from from columbus arrive they are essentially a thwart Grant's retreat route back, basically his safe pathway back to the transports. So yeah, it's yeah. There's like kind of this period of time. There's like the you know the, the march over the initial engagement, the 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 the, the federal uh, menagerie in the camp uh, that that I can't imagine lasts real long, an hour maybe at the most, and then there's this uh, you know there's this moment where the men start to realize that the Confederates are now in our rear and then not realizing that some of those troops were the ones they had just fought, but some of them were reinforcements. And, you know, there's, there's, there's this, uh, call it a momentary panic, probably longer than a momentary panic. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 the victory that they have secured basically threatens to undo them. Yeah. Because now the Confederates are, you know, uh, between them and their 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 transports. I mean, there was no intention of moving into Belmont and just you know putting down stakes and staying there. Well, this is the new federal position. No, <laughs> it was, this was a raid. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, the whole was... point of a raid is to get in and get out. Well, all of a sudden, your enemies on your way out, and yeah, there were there was some uh, panic. Is a good word for it. Uh, I know Grant mentions in his memoirs that, you know, the panic seemed to infect the officers just as much as the enlisted men. Mm -hmm. And they seem to think that their only way out of this thing was to surrender. And, uh, and like I said, this is kind of the making of Grant. Sherman would have probably been apoplectic at this point, you know, with the enemy in his rear. And Grant's like, you know what? We cut our way in. We're going to cut our way out. Yeah, exactly. And then when they, they so reasonably successfully, but uh, yeah, it was a veteranizing moment for these, you know, their ardor took them into their, you know, in their excitement of the joy of victory, they took their eyes off. And they almost paid the price of being captured, you know, in mass because of it. So you got to think these guys uh, at the end of the battle had to look at this engagement. And I'm sure they put two and together about 
things that we're going to do the next time we go into action that, you know, they almost got. Ah, oh, yeah, there you are. It booted me, but anyway. So as I said, I think it, it, it's kind of a uh, really a veteranizing moment uh, for the few regiments of Grant's army. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, the uh, one of the other, you know, the more famous things Grant says about this battle is this realization that he has that the enemy is just as much afraid of him as he was of them. And I, once he kind of gets makes that mental breakthrough uh, you don't see that happen again i mean he, mm-hmm. he he's uh, he has respect for his confederate opponents but you know he is generally more interested in what he's going to do in front of him he doesn't seem to worry a whole lot about what's going on as in sherman points this out you know uh rather famously is a, a major uh command and style difference um between the two where that those kind of things would keep Sherman up nights and, you know, Grant would just <laughs> wouldn't mind at all. Okay. Well, they can do what they're going to do, but wait, just wait till you see what I do to them up front here. And, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're going to get, uh, well, like you mentioned too, that it's kind of an untenable position. Grant's going to kind of see it as a success, even though it's mm-hmm. not really a success because he reasons we can't hold Belmont anyway without holding Columbus. Yeah, it's untenable. It's it's a raid, like yeah. you said. It's get in, yeah. get out. Well, well, the in the int- thing about the, the the broader intent was to prevent the Confederate garrison at Columbus from sending troops further into Missouri to reinforce Jeff Thompson by performing this demonstration. It basically puts the Confederates a little bit back on their heels, and I don't think they send these troops. So from the from the standpoint, did the did the raid accomplish what? the military objective was? Uh, yes, it did. Was it a federal battlefield victory? Uh, it's like most Civil War battles. Uh, one could argue either way. Um, I, I think the history books broadly considered a Confederate victory because they held the field at the end. And that usually is uh, Stones River. It's another great example. Uh, the Confederate Army certainly put up uh, quite a fight at Stones River and the first day of the battle had it going very much their own way. But by the end of the battle on January 3rd, it's the Confederate Army that's marching away and leaving the field to the Federals. So yeah, it's a it's considered broadly considered a Union victory. You look at what happened at Belmont. Uh, Grant's troops overran the enemy's camps that that, you know, you look at the um that certainly smacks of a battlefield victory i mean you you've you've not only driven them off their line you drove them through their own camp i mean that's that's quite an accomplishment of course confederates will do the same on the first day at shiloh Mm -hmm. and um so yeah yeah grant looks at it from the perspective of well you know we accomplish i accomplished what or we accomplished what i set out for us to do uh, the Confederates look at it as uh, as evidence of their superiority over the Yankees. Um, uh, the, the most of the accounts that I've seen on the federal side, they seem uh, they they emphasize much more, of course, you know, the taking of the camps, and you know, a lot of them brag about all the <laughs> the different things that they brought home from the camp, um, and then kind of cover it. Well, you know, we weren't going to stay there anyway. So, you know, that we, we just got driven back to the boats a little, a little faster than we anticipated. So, I mean, they, they kind of, kind of gloss over it. I mean, my perspective, 
it, it's a Confederate victory. I don't know how one can honestly argue any other way. Um, given that it was given that it is a raid, it is not part of any any broader you know major movement of federal forces in either theater at this point. And things are relatively quiet. Uh, for some time after this, I mean, almost like look at this battle. It's like this thing that just kind of, I won't say it occurs in a vacuum, but there's not a series of engagements afterwards or anything mm-hmm. like it's not the beginning of a, you know, an effect. it's, like I said, it's almost kind of like this odd, odd little battle. Yeah. Um, and it's going to give us a great Grant story. Because he's going to be the last one on the ships there, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and, and the issue, and he had lost. You know, he talks about he lost. He had, you know, going into action, uh, his first horse was shot under from under him, and uh, so the and apparently he must. I I don't. He doesn't mention in the. I mean, he was a great lover of horses. I mean, he was uh, and a very good horseman um, from all from all reports. Um. But yeah, as they are, uh, uh, the other thing that uh, kind of interesting, you know, reading his memoir, he doesn't have much in the way of, of staff at this point either, um, which is a not talked a lot about in you know Civil War scholarship, but is an absolutely crucial element to success on a battlefield for any general is to have a good staff around him. Because uh, the general can only be in so many places. He can only, he's really, he can be in one place. Mm-hmm. And to maintain, you know, of course, this becomes much more important the larger your scope of command is. You need to have a, a, a good, solid, dedicated team of people that you can trust because so many of these orders are all given verbally. It, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to send a lieutenant, you know, two divisions over to have them do something. Uh, you need to have a lot of trust in, you know, a lot of these lieutenants. I mean, you're talking 20 some year old guys. How many young 20 year olds do you trust with major, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it just you think about that. He's got to be a pretty extraordinary individual for, you know, Grant to trust, you know, uh, Lieutenant Lucian to take this command, you know, two <laughs> divisions over to execute this attack. He's got right. that hasn't developed yet. He, I mean, he is. He mentions that at one point near the end of the battle, he's trying to figure out where the Confederates are at. And he doesn't really have any cavalry, so to speak. He doesn't have staff. So he ends up, he's puttering around in this cornfield trying to, by himself, you know, the commander of the expedition trying to find where the Confederates are at and very nearly gets shot off his horse uh, because the Confederates are moving through this cornfield looking to, uh, and from their perspective, complete the victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ends up uh, scampering away uh, rather, you know, <laughs> rather ingloriously <laughs> and uh, manages to get to the Mississippi River. And he, he gets there and the, and the, uh, the steamboat has already pulled up the plank. <laughs> so he arrives and, you know, uh, you know they, of course, they very quickly run the plank back out to the shore and and Grant is very uh, effusive in his praise about you know how sure-footed his horse is. He, the horse just sees what needs to be done and just you know clip clops up the up the way onto the onto the boat and they pull the plank in and you know the boat shoves off. And I and I've seen it in multiple accounts. You know, no the the boats no sooner start pulling away from from the shore 
then the Confederate forces kind of arrive in the in the bluffs overhead and start, you know, they open fire on on these on these steamboats. But uh, I didn't I didn't see much in the way of any casualties or anything that were taken. I think Grant mentions that the uh, the smokestack was was perforated quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but they do manage to go away. Now that said, uh, the Federals do leave I think 175 wounded men behind, uh, who of course you know captured in the course of this. Uh, overall casualties, I want to say we're 500-ish per side. I'm sure there's more specific figures out there. So it is, a from a standpoint, especially at this point in the war, a pretty significant engagement, a fairly bloody one from, from the standpoint of casualties. Uh, but yeah, Grant does, Grant and his, uh, the majority of his force uh, do manage to uh, uh, escape the Confederate uh, uh, pincer there at uh, at Belmont. They get safely on their boats. Most of them, like I said, there was about 175 wounded that were left behind. And, uh, you know, they head back to Cairo to <laughs> fill the newspapers with, uh, you know, their, their accounts of their exploits. And, um, yeah, I mean, as far as the battle, it didn't, I mean, think about it, like, it was not a major turning point in the Civil War at all. Right. Um, but it was a, I think, a very important first command experience for Grant. I assure you, he learned a lot mm -hmm. of this first time out, as did his troops and really the Confederate side, too. I mean, this is, you know, uh, like I said all part of the process of of veteranizing the armies. And you got to get out in the field and see, you know, how, you know when you uh, when you get to see the elephant, what's it really look like? Mm hmm. And, you know, you start learning about, you know, different things you need to emphasize. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, how do you how do you maintain effective control of your line? How do you keep how do you keep men aligned? How do you keep them firing and, you know, in sync? Um, although you see a lot of times tactically in the Civil War, there's usually a, an initial fire by fire by battalion or fire by regiment. And then it goes down to fire by file. And pretty soon it's, you know, a, a fire at will. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it 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 goes to fire at will after that first volley. I mean, there's so, but they're all learning this stuff. This is all new. Uh, that none of the troops that were engaged in this battle uh, had seen any significant action yet. So this is their first time, first time of the dance. Yeah, well, I think that's a good cover of the battle there. Um, I think that sets us up well next time. Maybe we'll pick up with Donaldson, or Henry and Donaldson next time. That'll be very good. Yeah. As always, I'm impressed with your knowledge. You never fail to amaze me. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, I'm pretty passionate about this, about this, uh, you know, really the Western armies in general, I kind of joke about it that, you know, the, the army of the Cumberland was the family business during the civil war. And it, it, <laughs> I, I shouldn't joke about it. It really was. And I'm sure my ancestors are throw lightning bolts down there's no joke about that young man is but uh yeah it's a great story and you know grant uh, my my firstborn is his middle name is grant oh really it's in part you know my my admiration uh for general general grant so i lost that battle i tried for ulysses for a first name <laughs> <laughs> it failed so then i tried hiram and that yeah well you gotta go for the middle name you gotta go yeah. for the sometimes spouses can be a little more flexible tag I mean, honestly most people don't use their middle names and and you know they use their initial nine times out of ten so 
yeah ask what their middle name is but uh yeah it was fun it is it's a it's a a fun battle to uh to explore and one of the things i enjoy about it too it's small enough that you can get into some fair level of you know tactical detail which we really didn't have time to do here today uh but you know nathaniel hughes's book i i cannot recommend it highly enough it's got it's the narrative is a couple hundred pages, so you're going to get a lot more than just Bel- Belmont itself. You get more of the kind of the strategic picture, mm-hmm. what's going on in the West at the time. Uh, lots of good maps, which is always very, very helpful. Um, yeah. And, you know, Daniel Hughes being just who he is, you know, kind of a legend in our field. Uh, he does a fantastic job telling a story. So it's it's a good book. I, I picked mine up on the secondary book market. I, I might have paid 10 or 15 dollars for it. So, you know, very reasonable. Uh, eBay's wonderful. You can always find things like that out there. And it's really just it's just called the Battle of Belmont. So I want to say, too, I think even for listeners, I think you might be able to access it through the national. I'll double check. I'll put it in the show notes for listeners before. But uh, okay. I think you might be able to access it online, too, because I, I read through about half of it and I want to say I found it. So I'll put a link in the description for listeners so they can pick that up, too. And and I've got on, on my own, you know, shameless plug here. I've got, I think, four or five posts on Belmont on my uh, my Civil War Chronicles. Um, yeah. And, and you have a you have an archive by battle, right? Correct. On your I site? do. Yeah. Yeah. So on the uh, when you go to the, the Civil War Chronicles, if you click on index to the blog, it'll take you to a page that's divided really in two sections. The top section has the articles organized by unit. Um, and the bottom section is by subject or engagement. And honestly, the easiest thing to do is somebody gets on that page, just, you know, control F Belmont and it'll shoot you right down to the page. Because, I mean, there is 800. There's, there's generally two links for every uh, every blog post. So now there's like 1600 links on this page. So it's it's kind of long. Um, yeah, I'll put that in the show notes, too, so that listeners have that as well. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And I, I said there, I think there's. A couple of couple accounts from Illinois troops, and then I've got one from the 13th Tennessee, and I think there's another one there from the 11th Louisiana. I've I've got a soft spot for the Louisiana troops too. So uh, <laughs> yeah, they're they're yeah they're good and you know good firsthand accounts there that you know kind of flesh out a little more of what we discussed here today. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I encourage readers to check that out. And as always, it's an excellent discussion. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review as it helps the podcast grow. Also, please share with a friend, and don't forget to donate to the Civil War Center because there are costs incurred with running the podcast, and we hope to see you next time at the Civil War Center. Yeah.